Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Before we have our reading today, though, I wanted to mention a couple of prayer requests uh, to you. Many of you have heard over this last week just through the network here at the church that our beloved Denise Buck, uh, this last week while visiting her children back east in Atlanta, uh, fell very ill, and she's currently uh, in the hospital. Um, she is making positive signs, but it has been a serious week for her and for Jeff, um, and uh, there's something to do with the liver and also with the heart. And uh, they're seeing, like I said, some encouraging signs, but we're praying for a full recovery. But it looks like the kind of thing that's going to take a little while. And uh, so it was real scary there for about a day. And then things began heading in a better direction, but still they're not out of the woods yet. So uh, we've been praying for Denise and, of course, Jeff this week. And we want to pray for them uh, together uh, as a church this morning. They mean so much to so many of us here in this room. Uh, but then also I wanted to pray for our youth pastor, Joshua Shively, who um, also this last week was working underneath his vehicle and the jack failed. And uh, so he's got a clavicle injury and other injuries that they're dealing with right now. And so he's not here today. Um, the cool part of the story is that apparently I'm told Erica came out and found him that way. Erica is his wife, and she, by herself, deadlifted the car up enough to be able to get him out. So, love that guy. He's a strong man. I know he's going to recover, but just need to lift him up to the Lord. So, would, we, would you guys pray with me real quick? Father, we come before you today. And uh, our hearts go out to Jeff and Denise, and Lord, we want to lift up that woman and her body to you. You know what's happening, and we pray, Lord, that you would bring her to full strength from our vantage point, Lord, as quickly as possible. We pray for every medical professional that they would have great insight and wisdom. I even heard this morning that the hospital that she's at is perfect for this kind of situation. So thank you, Lord, for your providence and allowing her to be in that place. Strengthen her physically and, uh, Lord, Jeff emotionally and spiritually as he cares for her during this time. Uh, but, Lord, we pray that eventually they would both come back in full strength, uh, Lord, ready for many years of fruitfulness here in your kingdom. And, Lord, for Josh, we pray that you would strengthen him as well. I know he's in a lot of pain right now. I pray, Lord, that you'd stand with that man, that you would also, Lord, heal him completely as well. Thank you, Lord, for the Shivelys and what they mean to this church family and this community. Thank you, Lord. We commit these beloved people into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today's scripture reading is going to be given by Rob Leak. Many of you have probably seen Rob around in our hospitality ministry. Uh, Rob and his wife Sharon actually began coming to the church during COVID online. They became kind of like members of the church during the time where we were almost exclusively online and then eventually connected live and in person. Rob's in the retirement years of his life, had a, a great and successful career, including in the military for a season. 
and uh, heard the call for somebody to lead our hospitality ministry and said, you know, I want to use my retirement years for Jesus. And uh, he said yes to the Lord in that way, and he's been a great fit. We've been blessed to have him. So he really uh, got, he got, he, he skated by. He doesn't have any of those crazy names to read in Nehemiah. So he's got Mark 11, <laughs> verse 1 to 25 today, so if you guys would follow along. So thanks, Rob. Morning, church. Mark 11, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. All right. Thank you, bro. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and first we pray for Rob and his bride Sharon and ask Lord that you would bless this season of their lives here in the church and as a married couple enjoying each other and enjoying their family and community bless them Lord in every way father with Rob standing here we pray Lord together for all the retirees of Calvary Monterey and ask Lord and pray that 
these would be fruitful years of their lives. Your word never mentions retirement. There is always something that you have for us to do in life. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this season of life really well for your kingdom here in this church. Thank you, Lord, for your word today, for blessing us with it. We pray that by your spirit, you would teach us and encourage us from this passage in Mark's gospel. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks, Rob. Well, I'd like to treat this passage today as, a, as a, an appendix to our study in the book of Nehemiah. Through Nehemiah's story, we were thinking about how God renews his people, but the book ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger. And so today, I would like to say that God renews his people by coming to his people, by arriving for his people, by rescuing his people. And that's what this story is going to show us. Now, in this passage, Jesus did three uncharacteristic things, things that stand out as different from his normal operating procedure. Uh, the first interesting thing or different thing that he did is that he rode into Jerusalem rather publicly on the young colt of a donkey. He rides in accepting adulation and praise and attention. And this is different because Jesus often quieted people down about his popularity and presence. All through Mark's gospel, there are multiple times where he tells people, hey, don't tell anyone that I just healed you. Don't tell anyone that I just delivered you. And when the crowds wanted to make him into their king after he fed the 5,000 miraculously, Jesus immediately got into a boat and departed from them. He didn't crave that kind of attention. There was a certain time that Jesus needed to die, and he knew that his popularity would eventually lead to the jealousy of the religious leaders, and so he didn't need to speed up that process any more than it was already happening. So this is different. He's willing to receive that praise and attention. The second thing that Jesus does in this passage that's just different is that when he sees this fig tree, he curses it. And later in the passage, we learn from Peter that it withers up from its roots. And the reason why that's so different is because Jesus didn't normally use his miraculous power to destroy life. He usually used his miraculous power to restore or to bring life. He'd heal people. He'd deliver people. Uh, he would gain even mastery over the elements in order to teach a lesson, and he would even bring people back to life. He would revive them, uh, raise them back into life. So this is a different thing that Jesus does, using his miraculous power to destroy. And then the last thing that is different, that probably is the least different of all three of those movements, is that Jesus goes into the Temple Mount and he begins cursing. Uh, and driving out those who are buying and selling and ripping the people off in their worship. And I say that it's probably the least drastic of all three things because at the beginning of his ministry, in the first year, year one of his ministry, he'd done this very same thing. So this is three years later. But also Jesus 
customarily rebuke the religious leaders, but still it stands out to us as different because of the way that he's doing it in this passage, overturning tables and stuff like that. We just sort of think to ourselves, really, Jesus, it's a little intense. Is this really a good thing for you to be doing? So what are we to learn of these strange episodes in the life of Jesus? Well, for the first episode, for his coming to Jerusalem quite publicly, I think what we're meant to learn is that Jesus is the hoped-for Messiah. He is the figure, the Savior that all of Jerusalem and Israel was setting their hopes and attention upon. Now, the whole scene is fascinating. Uh, Jesus uh, sent two of his disciples into Bethphage to collect a colt. Uh, the other gospels tell us that it was a colt of a donkey, so it's a, a young donkey. The other gospels also tell us that they took the donkey's mother, probably as a way to calm the colt down as they were going in, you know, people throwing clothes on the ground and, and waving branches and all of that would have been a traumatic experience for that young animal. So the mother being there would have probably calmed it down a little bit. And Jesus gave his disciples a really unconventional way of collecting these two donkeys. He says, go into the town and find the colt tied up and just take it and if anybody says, hey, that's my donkey, say, the Lord has need of it and will return it, and they will let you go. And they went into Bethphage, and it happened just like Jesus said. Kind of a cool little moment, real Jedi-like experience. Can you imagine like doing this at Trader Joe's or something? Like, the Lord has need of these <laughs> groceries. But it worked. So why would Jesus want to do this? Why would he want to ride into Jerusalem publicly on this young donkey? The other gospels tell us that the religious leaders even came and said, you need to stop everybody from saying these things about you, singing these messianic songs to you. And Jesus said, if they stopped singing, even the very rocks around here would cry out. All right? So why would Jesus choose such a different and dramatic entrance on this day? Well, part of the answer is, we already alluded to it in our service when Pastor Riley read from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Part of the answer is that it fulfilled a specific biblical prophecy. Zechariah 9, verse 9, we'll put it on the screen there for you. Rejoice, O people of Zion, shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey riding on a donkey's colt. Now, Mark doesn't mention that prophecy, so some of you might be wondering, is that really what Jesus was doing? But when Matthew and John tell this story, they both include a quotation of that prophecy. They knew this was a fulfillment of that moment. And it's not like, I don't want you to get the wrong idea, it's not like the people were sitting there at the gates of Jerusalem with Zechariah 9, verse 9 opened up in their little Old Testament scrolls saying like, this is it. This is a long forgotten prophecy, but Jesus knew this prophecy. So he is fulfilling long-forgotten prophecies in Scripture when he came into Jerusalem on this day. And this prophecy is important because it expressed the long-awaited hope of God's people. You see, God had told Israel that a descendant of King David would one day sit upon the throne 
of God forever. Now, when Nehemiah arrived on the scene and did all of his rebuilding and restoration of Jerusalem, that was one of the things that people were hoping would happen. They were hoping the king from David will come. Nehemiah wasn't in David's line. Nehemiah couldn't serve as that king. And when Nehemiah operated as the governor of Jerusalem, he wasn't even thinking that he was the one fulfilling those prophecies because he wasn't. They were still waiting for that Davidic figure to come. But they were also waiting for something else, very special, perhaps even more special than the presence of a Davidic king. They were waiting for the return of the glory of God to Jerusalem. Before Nehemiah's day, there was a prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel had a vision of God's glory up and lifting from the temple and departing from the Holy Land. It was a terrible vision. Because of their disobedience to God, God's presence departed for a period of time. But Nehemiah, in his vision, also saw a day where the glory of God returned from the east to the temple precincts. So the people of Israel, at Jesus's time, what are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for the son of David to come, and they're also still waiting Nehemiah didn't see the glory of God come back to that temple. They're still waiting for the glory of God to return. The son of David and the glory of God. And here's the beautiful thing. On this day, what does Jesus do? He comes into Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple. On this day, even though they didn't know it, the son of David, the descendant of David, the messianic king, the one who will sit on God's throne forever, who is also simultaneously the express image of the glory of God and is the glory of God. Both of those things they were waiting for were happening on that glorious Sunday almost 2,000 years ago. It's powerful. And the wild thing to me is that it might have been important for Jesus to do this on this exact specific day on the calendar. I didn't mention this when we were in Nehemiah chapter 2, but there are many who think that Jesus's entrance on Palm Sunday was connected to a specific event in Nehemiah's story. You see, not to complicate things, but in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel received a prophecy from God. And the prophecy in part said, that from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, arrives and is cut off in Jerusalem would be a period of exactly 483 years. Well, in Nehemiah chapter 2, King Artaxerxes, the man with the authority to give such an edict, told Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem to restore Jerusalem, to rebuild Jerusalem. And some scholars have done the math and the homework and have figured out the specific day of that commission and fast-forwarded to the specific day of Christ's arrival in Jerusalem and have discovered that it was 483 years to the day. Now, full disclosure, not Every biblical scholar thinks that's the way that that prophecy unfolded. But those who do, they're persuasive to me. To me, this is one of the signs that Jesus is the Messiah Christ that we are waiting for. But all this to say, Jesus fulfilled prophecies 
when he arrived in Jerusalem that day. The son of David came. The glory of God came. And he had come on the right day. And this wasn't, of course, the only time that Jesus did or said something that fulfilled a long-forgotten prophecy. The Bible had said that when the Messiah came, he would be born of a woman who was a virgin, and that he would be born in the city of Bethlehem. The Bible said that he had to be a descendant of Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, from the tribe of Judah, and, of course, from the line of David inside of Judah. The Bible said that he would spend some of his childhood in Egypt, which Jesus did when his family fled from Bethlehem and lived in secrecy as refugees in Egypt for a period of time. The Bible said that a massacre would happen, a massacre of children would happen in his birth town, which happened, of course, when Herod conducted his wickedness in killing the children of Bethlehem two years and younger. The Bible said that a messenger would cry out in the wilderness as a way to prepare people for his coming, which is exactly what John the Baptist did for before Jesus publicly arrived. The Bible said that he would be rejected by his own people. The Bible said that he would be a Moses-like figure who would also lead his people out of some sort of slavery, which is what Jesus did in delivering us from our slavery to sin. The Bible said that the prophet Elijah would come before he came. Elijah had already lived and, and then ascended. He had not actually died, but that Elijah would come back before the Christ came. And Jesus said of John the Baptist, he's come in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he is Elijah who is to come, Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it. The Bible said that the Messiah would be known as a Nazarene, and when they came back from Egypt, his family resettled in Nazareth, and he was known as the Nazarene. The Bible said that the Messiah would do much of his work in Galilee, that he would teach in many ways, but that one of his favorite styles of teaching would be with parables. The Bible said that he would serve the brokenhearted, that little children would praise him, that he would be betrayed by a friend, and that the money that was spent to betray him would eventually be used to purchase a field. The Bible said that he would be falsely accused, but that he would be silent before his accusers, that he would be crucified, and that he would be crucified with criminals. The Bible said that they would give him vinegar to drink while he was dying on the cross. The Bible said that his hands and his feet would be pierced. The Bible said that he would be mocked, and ridiculed while dying, and that soldiers would gamble for his garments while he died. And that his bones would not be broken while on the cross, but that they would instead pierce his side, and that they would bury him in a rich man's tomb, and that he would rise from the dead. These are over 30 prophecies from the Old Testament that I think Jesus fulfilled quite nicely. It sounds like Jesus to me. The sure prophetic witness of Scripture pointing to him. He is, as I'm trying to say in this first point, the hoped-for Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for. Yeah, amen. Now, the second episode that's interesting is when Jesus rebuked the fig tree. And for this, I think that we should learn to be or be encouraged to be 
as connected to Jesus as we possibly can. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, uh, he's headed straight for the temple. Look at Mark 11, verse 11 again. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the key verse to understanding everything that comes after it. You see, what this figure would do when he went into Jerusalem was of great significance. You know, they weren't expecting that we're going to put down our garments, we're going to put down these palm branches, we're going to sing from Psalm 133, we're going to sing Hosanna, save now, we're going to proclaim him as the son of David, we're going to do all this stuff, and then he's going to go into the gate of Jerusalem and then just go get a falafel or something and go home. Like, we're, they're expecting, like, what will be this man's first move? What is he going to do? And what Jesus does is telling. He goes straight to the temple. This would have been an exciting moment. Like he's doing it. He's going where we want him to go. He's going to the religious heart and epicenter of the people of Israel. What is he going to do there? And all he does on that Palm Sunday, Mark tells us, is he just looks around. He observes. He's thinking, not speaking, not saying, not doing just watching, seeing what he sees in those, in those temple precincts. And what Jesus saw, we learn from the passage, it angered him. He went back to Bethany. He spent the night. Then the next day, he returned. He went to the temple, and in an act of premeditated and righteous anger, he began clearing out the temple because of what he'd seen the day before. What had he seen? Well, instead of religious leaders who were assisting people in their pursuit of God, he saw an elaborate scheme designed for profit. Instead of helping foreigners come and worship the God of Israel, exchanging their money for the accepted temple shekel, he saw money changers gouging them with high surcharges. Instead of providing an easy way for the poor in Israel to worship God there in the temple, and God had made an easy way for them to be able to offer pigeons if they were poor instead of larger and more expensive animals. There were pigeon salesmen on the temple or in the temple precincts charging premium prices for pre-approved sacrificial animals, including pigeons. And instead of prayer and worship, the people were using the core of the Gentiles not as a place of prayer, but as a shortcut through the city. You want to get from one side of the city to the other, cut through the court of the Gentiles. And all this infuriated Jesus. And it's right that it infuriated Jesus. It was his house. Remember what he said? It's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It was his house, and he didn't like what he found in his house. So we quoted from Isaiah 56, that my house shall be called a house of prayer, and Jeremiah 7, verse 11, but you have made it a den of thieves, rebuking the people and clearing out the temple. And Jesus' anger at that moment, it was right. It was good. He should have been angry at what he saw. The God of Israel had arrived as the son of man, the son of David, the glory of God, and they were less than prepared. 
Now, with this whole temple complex in mind, I think we can now understand the episode of the fig tree. Jesus approached the fig tree with all of its leaves, looking like it probably had some fruit on it. But when Jesus discovered that it had no fruit, he rebuked the fig tree. And the next day, when they went by the fig tree again, Peter saw it, and he was shocked. It's dried up, it's withered from the roots. He's impressed, and he mentions it to Jesus. And I think this helps us understand the fig tree as a living parable. Israel had all the outward manifestations of fruit to God. They had a temple, they had worship, they had sacrifices, they had a priesthood, they had incense. This very season that they're in, they had the Passover. They looked fruitful, but the nations had not heard about God, and the house of God was not a house of prayer. They'd not been fruitful. And Jesus looked around at that temple complex just like he looked at that fig tree in full bloom, and he found no fruit in either. And for both, his rebuke was stern. When Jesus and his disciples returned to Jerusalem, like I said, Peter noticed it, and he pointed it out to Jesus. And Jesus didn't take a big, long time to explain, well, Peter, what happened yesterday? Remember when I was clearing out in the temple and all that kind of, remember all, that's what I'm gonna do, and I rebuke the, he didn't do that. He just said in verse 22, have faith in God. Have faith in God. The tree was an example. It had no root. It had withered. It had no fruit. It had withered from the root because they'd not had true, legitimate faith in God. A connection to God requires that we walk and that we live by faith, but that's not what they were doing. Everything was external but the invisible heart realities were not present. They were far from him, and their disconnection from God led to lifelessness. Now, what this helps us understand is that a strong connection to God for a human being is similar to a healthy root system for a tree. A healthy root system for a tree means that life and nourishment and everything that's needed for that tree to flourish and if it's a fruit-bearing tree, produce fruit, a healthy root system in the, in the right place means that it will be alive. Jesus thinks of a human life in the same way, that when our roots, when we are connected strongly to God, that's how we bear the fruit of spiritual life and character. This analogy helps us remember that we are primarily spiritual beings. We have bodies, we have souls, but God created us primarily as spiritual beings. And when we're properly aligned to and with God, good fruit inevitably flows from our lives. We, in a sense, don't even have to think about producing it. It just comes because it's a byproduct of our connection to, our relationship with him. It simply grows out from us because we've maintained our connection to God. And I think this is important because the same pressure that Israel experienced back in those days of having a showy, or if I could use this word, a leafy kind of walk with God, 
something that looked impressive, but in reality, once it was weighed, it was found wanting. That pressure and that temptation, it always exists in the Christian life today. The temptation to slip into outward forms of religiosity without the true inner life of fellowship with God, prayer, loving and enjoying him. What did Jesus say when they asked him, what's the greatest command? He said, well, it's simple. You love the Lord. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You pay attention to the roots of who you are, and you sink them down deep into a love for and relationship with God. You do that, the most important thing, and everything else is going to follow in your life. But the thing is, is that inauthentic Christianity, it's way easier. It's way easier. It's way easier to slap the smile on our face. It's way easier to do the external things and to neglect that private life of devotion unto God. And so I want to encourage you today to take care of your spiritual roots, to be thinking about that root system going down deep into your relationship with God. You know, I like to talk about and think about things like Bible study and prayer and fasting and fellowship and solitude, but not as an end in and of themselves, but as a means to develop the root system that is connecting to God himself, that is saying, God, I want you. I want to pursue you. I want to be about you. And what Jesus announced at the end of the passage that we read today is that if that is our focus, amazing results follow. I think you could describe it like this. The most dynamic prayer life ever described is yours if that life exists. I mean, how did Jesus talk about it? He said, it's a prayer life that moves mountains. It's a prayer life that has whatever it asks. It believes it has received whatever it asks for from God. And Jesus said, it forgives because it's forgiven. Like, I'm telling you right now, I wouldn't even say these things. I wouldn't attempt to even come close to promises like that if Jesus hadn't said them, if they weren't written there in red ink in our Bibles today. But that's what Jesus claimed. The claims are so huge that a lot of us just read those passages and we're like, all right, Jesus. I don't know what that means, but I don't got that. And we just kind of move on thinking this is some mystery that we'll never really attain to. And a lot of people have also misunderstood, not just neglected his words, but misunderstood his words. You know, some people come to the false conclusion based on what Jesus said, that if we just believe enough, that if we just mentally envision something that we want enough, it will be ours. That is terrible theology. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, though. It's a temptation in the modern spirit to think that way. You know, I've talked with people all the time. You know, they're Christians, they're walking with Jesus, but they're, and they're like, oh man, I feel like I'm starting to come down with something. No, I'm not even going to speak that. I will not speak that into existence. I'm like, who are you? Who, you, you God now? You speaking stuff into existence? Get out of here. That's not what's happening. 
but, but we have this mentality that like I can mentally image something into existence and that's what Jesus is talking about here. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Others have thought that Jesus is giving a blank check, you know, a way to get whatever we want, a way to pursue our dreams. But views like that, what they, what they refuse to remember, what they neglect is who Jesus was talking to that day. He was talking to disciples whom he's just told to have faith in God. Disciples whose entire lives are about to be consumed with the pursuit of the expansion of the kingdom of God. Their whole focus, every fiber of their being is going to be a living, breathing embodiment of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All we want, what we want most and exclusively is for your kingdom to expand. And these men never understood Jesus's words as a means towards wealth or ease or power or status or even health. You read the book of Acts, it's very clear. They didn't live those things. They lived a rough life, but expanding the kingdom. That's the kind of expectation they had based on Jesus' words, that the power of God could join them on the mission of God. So when we read of Jesus' description, I think what we're reading of is his definition of a fruitful disciple who has really thought about the roots of their lives. And if this is where your life is at, Jesus is saying, you're going to have a greater effectiveness in and for the kingdom because you are so connected to walking by faith with God. And so I think the second episode helps us say, yeah, we need to pay attention to our connection to him. All right, well, let's close with a brief little moment, just thinking about the third thing that he did. I already kind of explained it a little bit, the clearing of the temple precincts. And I think for that one, what we should have is an encouragement to reorder, rearrange continually, I think we'd say, our lives around Jesus. Jesus comes into Jerusalem's temple. He's angry by what he sees. They were centering themselves on all the wrong stuff. They were centering themselves around profit. They were centering themselves around power. They were centering themselves around hypocrisy seeming to be one thing when they were actually another. John's statement about the world being the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's what they were about. Their whole paradigm for living was rooted in that uh, philosophy. But Jesus was displeased with it. Now, I told you in our time in the book of Nehemiah that there is no earthly temple for God today that was fulfilled with Jesus. There's no temple in Jerusalem that God occupies, but that the church, we as individuals and together collectively, right now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the things that Jesus was looking for in that temple, they are actually things that Jesus is looking for in us today as his temples here on earth. So what did he look for? Well, when he came to that temple, what he wanted was honest prayer, but what did he find? He found religious activity that had nothing to do with God. 
been talking about this today, but there was no heart devotion for God. There was no real worship. They were busy with all sorts of things, but none of them had anything to do with God. And most of them even contradicted God's kingdom. And that's what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for spiritual busyness. He's looking for real, earnest, true devotion before him. In other words, if you are going through the motions of you know, serving in your local church, giving in your local church, or just kind of mindlessly going through those things without any heart or devotion about them, that's not really what Jesus is looking for. He'd rather have you go to the beach and open your Bible and just sit and be with him for a period of time to enjoy him, to engage with him. He wants those things that we do externally to have the right and proper heart motivation behind them. Uh, when Jesus came into the temple, he wanted to find people giving to God and giving to their fellow man. You know, in other words, he wanted to see worshipers pointed towards the Lord, but he also wanted the poor and the traveler and all the nations that were far from God to find a warm and helpful welcome in their worship. But instead of people who were giving to others, in giving to God, what Jesus found were takers, people who were there trying to figure out how to get an edge for themselves rather than giving to God and to the people. And that's what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for us to be takers. He's looking for us to be givers, to be continually sniffing out opportunities to lay down our lives either for him or for others. And when Jesus came to the temple, he wanted to find God's people doing everything that they could to become a house of prayer for all nations. In some of his parables, Jesus said things like, go to the highways and the byways, inviting people to the wedding feast. That's Jesus's mentality. He wants that outreach spirit in the heart of his people. But instead of seeing every nationality invited, every ethnicity in his holy house, Jesus found an ethnocentric nationalism and a literal wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. Rather than welcome the nations, they'd pushed or ostracized the nations from God. And Jesus is not looking for that. He's not looking for us to behave with that exclusivity, but with a gospel-saturated inclusivity. He wants us to focus not on the self, but on others. And the last thing is that when Jesus came to the temple, he wanted to see a space that was dedicated to solemn worship and joyous praise, but what he found was hustle. He found business and trade. He wanted them to dedicate their temple for, for worship, but they ran around at this frenetic pace. And that's not what Jesus is looking for. He's not looking for us to hustle our way through life, but to be people of Sabbath and rhythm and prayer before him. That's who he wants. So this Palm Sunday, let's be a people who say, praise God, the king came. He's looking into my life, and he longs for me and my church community to be as fruitful as possible through our connection to the living God that he made possible and he is the one that is worth centering my life, our lives around and upon. Thank you for listening. 
If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.